0: to The Drabblecast, episode 267. The Drabblecast was a weekly audio fiction magazine that brought strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman. If you're listening to this, that means you survived the apocalypse. That's awesome. Totally good for you. I pre-recorded this final episode of the Travelcast from the bunker I built when I first heard about Maya Angelou, or whoever, predicting the end of the world in 2012. And here we are, at the end of the world. Who would have thought? I mean, I've always been cynical enough to think it would happen, and always been self-centered enough to think it would happen in my lifetime, but right before Christmas, come on, I was about to get an iPad. Anyways, I've got most of what I need down here to help me and my cat stay alive for the next few weeks. Food, bottled water, batteries. Although, for the record, I do need a turntable. I mean, I have no idea what's going on out there right now. Twitter was down for a couple minutes ago last week and that was all the warning I needed, man. (laughs) Bunker time not sure if you folks are still in the day after phase with luxuries like emergency broadcast and lootable grocery stores or if you've already moved on to the grittier stages and had your first tastes of human flesh but i know it's got to be bad way worse than the may 21st 2011 apocalypse like a thousand times worse than that whatever a thousand times zero is so, I thought I'd give you faithful listeners slash wastelanders some pointers on how to be the last man standing up there, depending on, you know, which civilization-crushing catastrophe ended up playing out. The zombie apocalypse. Well, for your sakes, I hope they ended up being slow zombies. If the zombie apocalypse started in Kenya, you're all f- Either way, you're going to want to stay mobile. Show me a person who doesn't walk on the escalator, and I'll show you a person who will transition poorly in the zombie apocalypse. It's not like the movies, folks. You don't want to go to the mall, get trapped and locked up someplace. there will always be zombies clamoring to get in. And they always do get in, don't they? Like a bald black leader guy in a squad of police, military, or some other armed force of peacekeeping. If you do have to get holed up in your home or someplace, don't answer unexpected knocks on the door. It could always be a polite zombie. Stay away from big cities. Most of the people in those congested streets will become a maddened swarm of brain-hungry, shambling rigor mortis before you know it. And the ones that don't will still be city assholes. And you're gonna want to get your hands on a weapon, pronto. Preferably something sweet that a Ninja Turtle would have used. And then just, you know, try to have fun with it and make the best of the situation. Bust out the war paint and don the nipples of the slain like badges. Admit it, you kind of always wanted to hit your husband in the face with a crowbar anyways. Now you get to, have to even. Now, say, the world ended up there for you folks via some natural mass extinction-level event. Meteor, solar flares, superquakes, could be anything, really. I've heard that, in addition to exploring feelings about race, Maya Angelou's poetry can be quite enigmatic at times. In whatever case, chances are the sun is almost totally blotted out from the sky, nothing's alive or growing, and you're just sulking around, ass to ankles, in the ashy remains of everything once loved and familiar. Food supply and water supply is the immediate issue here. The good news is, for your average American, you've already got fat reserves to keep you alive for a solid five to six years, and then your cat a little longer based on how much meat you have in your face. The bad news is, though, you guessed it, rapists and cannibals. Worse even, rapist cannibals. They're pretty much nothing but trouble, obviously. And they're easy to confuse with cannibal rapists, which are Kind to your friends. If you manage to get hidden off somewhere, though, with a food and water supply, the next problem you're probably going to face is existential. You're going to get bored, start to lose it, start bickering with your moles and stuff. What are you looking at?! And that's another reason I decided to record this final episode from down here in my bunker. To keep you weirdos from fighting with your moles. Let's listen to a 100-word story, shall we? Drabble, drabble, drabble! This week's Drabble is called Happy Old Year, and it comes to us from Christopher Munro. Chris is an actor, comedian, spec fic, author from Calgary, Alberta, and you can find his website where he writes a story a week at christophermunro.blogspot.com. <laughs> Times are tough all around, not just here, everywhere. So when 2012 came to an end and we realized we couldn't afford a new year, nobody was surprised. It wasn't a big deal at any rate. We're celebrating 1991 instead. Yes, the futurist in me recoils. I'd looked forward to seeing what 2013 had to offer But after all, one has to make do. I'm at a good party, surrounded by friends. Is the fact that I'm bringing in the old year that big a deal? Right here, right then, there's no other place I'd want to be. story this week. For the third year in a row, we bring you an original holiday story by author Tim Pratt, commissioned by the Drabblecast. This year, he teamed up with his wife, Heather Shaw, to bring us something quite befitting these Yuletide end times, a story called post apocalypse Tim's fiction and poetry has appeared in the Best American Short Stories 2005, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Asimov's, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, and Year's Best Fantasy, among other places. By day, he works as a senior editor at Locus Magazine, where, among other things, he writes obituaries. His short fictions won the Hugo Award, has been nominated for the Nebula Award, and he was a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Heather Shaw's had Fiction in Strange Horizons, Polyphony, The Year's Best Fantasy, Escape Pod, and other nice places. She's just finished her first middle grade novel, Keaton T. Jr. Gene Hacker, and is looking for representation. For more, visit heathershaw.org. So, without further ado, we bring you Post Apocalypse by Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw. Sandir smelled her. It was just a whiff, a few molecules of something familiar and therefore sweet, wafting on a late afternoon breeze that otherwise carried only the usual. Formaldehyde, benzene, dioxin, chromium, and miscellaneous particulate matter both organic and non Once, there had been the smell of roasting chestnuts and crackling logs and simmering spiced cider, but now only less pleasant things burned. There, represented by an air sample just barely statistically significant, was the scent of Sophie. As Sandir's processors hungrily checked and rechecked the data, he pulled up his favorite video of Sophie. He scanned all his footage and still images of her regularly, searching for signs of data corruption, terrified by the thought of her images succumbing to bit-rot, that beautiful face speckled with dead pixels. How long ago since the last picture was taken? He couldn't tell. His internal clock had been one of the first things to fail, and none of his attempts to connect to global networks were ever successful anymore. But it couldn't be too long, he reasoned. It was winter when he lost her after all, and it was still winter now, the sky a forever screen of gray clouds and drifting ash. Sandir stopped moving, pausing in a heap of broken glass beside a forest of steel girders twisted into fanciful shapes by some terrible heat. His favorite snippet of video looped, Sophie's skipping, laughing image superimposed over the devastating landscape before him, her long brown braids snapping down her back like rains as she moved. She turned and smiled at the device that had recorded this image, but Sandir remembered her smiling at him the morning she found him in her living room. When he stood next to the glowing Christmas tree, a big red ribbon wrapped around his body, saddle firmly strapped into place on his back, the bells and candy canes dangling from his shiny chrome antlers. That grin, with the two front teeth missing, Such a young girl, she shouldn't be alone on Christmas. He had newer footage in his memory, but he preferred the carefree scenes from happier days, when he'd run through the fields and forests around the lab with Sophie on his back, eating the carrots and grass and tree branches she offered, converting the biomass to fuel. She would grin widely whenever she heard the tell-tale rattle and slide of objects concealed inside his hollow belly, where her father, Sandir's maker, liked to hide gifts for Sandir to reveal at the proper time. His most recent images of Sophie came from just after the war began. By then, her teeth had grown back in. She was still little, though. She'd cried when her father told her she couldn't bring Sandir with her to the safe place. She'd hung to Sandir's neck and buried her face in his velvet fur, wetting him with her tears. His fur, now, was worn through to the bare metal in places, scraped against heaps of rubble too many times. "'Papa,' Sophie had cried, You made him for me, my Christmas miracle, to protect me and to be my friend forever. How can it be a safe place if Sandir can't come? Shh, the maker said. I'm sorry, but Sandir needs to eat, too. You know that. He runs on organic matter, just like we do, and they can't spare food at the shelter. The maker crouched down so his eyes were level with his daughter's. He stroked her hair, hanging loose that day, and patted her back. There's not much room, either. And Sandir, well, I made him to scale. He's the size of an actual reindeer. There's just... You said there were lots of other people there. If there's room for them, there's room for Sandir. Oh, Sophie... They need the room for the young, the sick, the weak, the human. Sandir can take care of himself. He can survive the bad weather that's coming. Much better than people like us can. We wouldn't survive outside. Not like Sandir. She clutched at her father. Are you going to die, Daddy? No, no, I'm going to a safe place, too. I just have some work to do first. The government needs me to build more machines. Like Sandir? Sort of, the maker said, but not as friendly. We'll be together soon, sweetie, all right? All right. Her voice was tiny, muffled in Sandir's fur. She shook her head against him. I'm going to say goodbye to Sandir now, daddy. Once the Maker left the room, Sophie pulled back and took Sandir's long, narrow face in her tiny hands. Her eyes were huge and as serious as Sandir had ever seen them. I'm going away now, she said. I don't want to, but bad weather and bad robots called drones and maybe bad people are coming. I know you can't stay with me, but... Promise you'll stay alive, and when the weather gets better and the bad people are gone, come find me again so we can play, okay? deer nodded, antlers dipping, and pushed his nose, a marvel of sensory engineering, against her cheek. She laid her head against his muzzle and kissed his nose, tears leaking onto him. Sandir's risk assessment protocols had worried the tears might mildew his fur. What a trivial thing to think about in the last moments with her. He'd been built as a plaything, a very fancy toy, but he was meant to be a protector too. The maker had enemies, agents of other governments and anti-war activists who thought his machines were immoral. But Sandier's prime function was to keep Sophie safe and happy and he had every imaginable marker for her stored in his memory. Her scent, DNA samples, voice prints, fingerprints, facial and gait recognition. Once he could find her from half a mile away just by lifting his nose and sniffing for her scent. But after the bad weather came, and the house fell, and the sky went dark, he lost her scent. He'd been looking for her ever since, because without her, he had no purpose. The scent was not easy. He set up a pattern, working his way out in an ever-increasing spiral, passing from relatively intact rural areas full of tasty biomass to the burning, bombed, flattened remains of cities. He could eat almost any organic matter and turn it into fuel, but soon the most satisfying meals became scarce. Some of the things he ate during the storms disagreed with him, full of heavy metals, and others were poisonous by radiation. Sometimes he had to eat things that damaged him because the alternative was grinding to a halt and ending his search. He saw humans, most dead, some running away, some throwing rocks, but none of them, Sophie, or the Maker, none of them were home. The dead ones, at least, could be converted to fuel, though he only ate them when he had no choice. The dead were, in a broad sense, relatives to Sophie and the Maker, and he felt monstrous when he opened his jaws and activated the grinders and blades hidden in his mouth to consume them. He knew Sophie wouldn't like the idea of him eating human bodies, that she would scream if she saw him, but survival was the only thing that mattered. If he became non-operational, he'd never find his family. Even so, he never ate the bodies of children. They simply reminded him too much of his beloved Sophie and the instinct to protect overwhelmed the instinct to survive. For a little while, he'd helped a fatherless, motherless little boy cross the broken rubble, carrying the sobbing, barely verbal child, younger even than Sophie had been, on his back. Those had been the good days. He had a purpose again, if not the proper purpose but the boy, terribly dehydrated, had ignored Sandir's warnings and drunk bad water from a stinking pool, and a few days later, Sandir was traveling alone again. He'd gone mad after that for a little while. His memory of that time was severely degraded, but he'd hurt one of his legs somehow, and the speakers in his throat had been blown out completely. He'd once possessed very basic defensive weapons installed to help him protect Sophie. A reservoir of rubber bullets, a battery-powered stun wand, but they'd been wholly used up by the time he finally came to his senses after the boy's death. It had taken days of walking for the blood of unknown origin to be scoured off his feet by the gritty earth. He had steeled himself against despair and resolved again to find Sophie. He must never again be distracted from his central purpose, for that purpose was as essential to his survival as fuel. And now he'd caught Sophie's scent. Sandir worried, for the first time in a long time, about how he looked, fur torn, antlers dull, and left rear leg loose at the joints, giving him an ungainly walk. Would Sophie want to ride on his back anymore, feed him apples, stroke him despite the bare metal? None of that mattered. She'd told him to find her, and now he had. Sandir picked his way across the rubble. Smelling Sophie meant she had to be fairly nearby and that she'd left the safe place to emerge into the open air recently. But she might have returned to safety, presumably underground, since there were virtually no intact structures left above, so he had to check every tunnel and hole and trench and pit for signs of human habitation. There was no further evidence of Sophie. He searched through the night and soon reached the edge of the city, broken concrete giving way to barren fields and occasional strands of evergreens. Sandir entered a grove of half-dead trees, pausing to chew on some of the dry branches. His array of olfactory processors caught the whiff of a familiar smell, burning logs, and underneath, Sophie's scent. He broke into a run, metal hooves knocking divots out of the cold earth, each step of his gallop jarring his essential machinery and making the contents of his belly slide and shift. He could feel tiny bits of him going wrong inside as he ran, but he refused to stop or even slow down. Sophie was so close. An old aerial drone buzzed in from the north, flying low and dipping crazily as it struggled to maintain equilibrium despite its lopsided rotors. A puff of air whizzed past Sandir's once-sensitive nose, and the drone spun backwards from the recoil of a shot. It was just an old robot, much like Sandir, still trying to adhere to its original mission. But it was standing between him and Sophie. Sandir's own weapons had long ago been used up, so he put on a burst of speed, closing the distance between himself and the drone. He leapt, and his antlers caught one of the rotors and sent the thing spinning wildly away. It struck the ground, fins bending, and smoke rose from its intact rotor as it tried in vain to fly again. Sandir limped toward it, rearing up on his back legs, and brought his forelegs down on the broken drone again and again until its case cracked open and viscous fluids oozed out. He stomped it into dust and fragments, not out of anger, but out of mercy. Sandir couldn't imagine how terrible it would be to remain aware, but broken and unable to fulfill one's function better to be entirely deactivated. He continued to follow Sophie's scent, going more carefully now in case there were other drones, but nothing attacked. Sandir pushed through a strand of trees and there, a small cabin cobbled together from a trailer and fragments of salvaged lumber and metal stood nestled among the trees, smoke rising in tendrils from an improvised chimney. Sandir raced towards it. His hooves hit the first step and plunged through the cracked wood, but the next step was solid enough and took his weight. He clomped up on the porch and kicked open the door. Inside was a snug, cozy room full of ruined fragments of furniture cobbled back into usable form. Sophie's scent was everywhere, maddening, and Sandir cantered from room to room, past makeshift beds, piles of tattered books, and a kitchen with a wood-burning stove. He tried to call for Sophie, forgetting in his enthusiasm that his broken speakers could no longer obey his commands. He began to search more slowly. There were only so many rooms, after all, and he didn't want to finish looking. But eventually, he did. Nothing. There was no one here. Sophie had gone. Sandir thudded back across the main room, head low, hooves thumping hollowly on the floor. Hollowly. His sensors were not as advanced as those on some of the robots and drones the Maker had created, some of those he knew could detect landmines just by sensing the different densities in the ground. Sandir was not so refined, but now that he paid attention, his sensors were good enough to detect a hollow space beneath his feet. He kicked at the floor, scuffing aside a rug, nailed down, and detecting the edge of a trap door. Sandir crouched, and old servos whined as a pair of panels on his side split open. The maker hadn't wanted to spoil the illusion that Sandir was a living reindeer, albeit with shiny antlers, so he'd hidden a pair of multi-jointed manipulators within Sandir's body to be revealed only when delicate work was necessary. Sandir reached down with his pinchers and grasped the ring on the floor, then hauled backward, pulling the trapdoor open, revealing a steep set of stairs. He pivoted his leg joints so he could descend more easily, then hurried down, reaching a hallway with stone walls. The cabin had been built on top of some sort of basement or underground facility, and he followed the corridor. The scent of Sophie was so strong now until he reached a door at the end. Sandir butted his antlers against the door, but it was heavy steel and solid. His primary objective screamed at him to start kicking, but Sandir knew it would do no good. His limbs would break before the door gave way. He paced back and forth in front of the sealed door, occasionally giving it a desolatory kick anyway to satisfy his compulsion to get closer to Sophie. He sat back on his hind legs and lowered his head, processors struggling to calculate how long he could sit a vigil here before he needed to return to the upper world to refuel. A crackling voice spoke from a concealed speaker. Not Sophie's. What do you want? Who are you? You don't look like any drone I've ever seen. Sandir looked up and noticed the camera for the first time. They could see him, then. But what did they see? When he was new, most people had admired him, but even then he knew some were frightened instead. As long as the Maker or Sophie were there to explain, the people would lose their fear and exclaim over how handsome he was. He'd had the charm of cuteness back then, the appearance of an overgrown toy. Now, with his raggedy velvet hide clinging to bare metal and patches, body dented, antlers jagged, eye lenses shattered to reveal the glowing red sensors underneath, he must look ugly and terrifying, and there was no one here to reassure the people hiding behind the door that he was harmless to humans. Sandir tapped the door as gently as he could to indicate he wanted to come inside then looked up at the camera. It's just sitting there, the voice complained. Sandir sat back on his haunches, lifting one hoof and moving it in sort of a wave. I think it wants to eat us. Some of those autonomous robots can live off of corpses. The voice was clearly speaking to someone else. It's so weird-looking, though. Weird? How? How? a new voice said almost too faint for sandier's microphones to pick up like one of the reindeer in that christmas book you showed us some kind of holiday themed murder machine get away from the screen the new voice said the crackling in the speaker distorted with sound but something about that voice print was familiar a gasp and a voice sandier definitely knew open the door Bolts in the door disengaged, and the slab of steel swung inward. Sandir's sensors lit up. There were humans inside, at least a half-dozen, a couple of adults, and children, boys and girls. One of them must be Sophie. Sandir, a voice said. It was the adult woman. She approached while the others cowered, reaching out a hand and touching his muzzle. Sandir flinched away, craning his head to look past her at the children applying facial recognition. The two girls were close, but their faces weren't perfect, and both were younger than Sophie had been when he last saw her, so they couldn't be. Was there another girl hiding? The room beyond the door was clean but bare. A pyramid of rusty cans sat in one corner, with worn socks strewn around it like garland. A few bedrolls were neatly piled nearby, and worn playing cards were scattered on a metal folding table. There was only the one room, and Sandir could not see any other children that could be Sophie or any plausible hiding space. Sandir, the woman said, drawing his attention back to her, It's me, Sophie. She patted his muzzle again and his olfactory receptors scanned her. She did have Sophie's scent, but she was so old. He flickered out his tongue, licking her palm and sampling her DNA. Perfect match. That couldn't be right. His sampling software must have been corrupted. Honey, what's going on? The adult male said. The woman, she couldn't be Sophie. How could she be Sophie? Knelt and pressed her face against his neck. My father, you know, he was a government roboticist. He made me this. Sandir. He was my best friend, my only friend, when we were living at the laboratory compound, way out in the country. Sandir must have been searching for me. All this time, I can't believe it. More than twenty years... Sandir's processors word, His clock had broken, but twenty years? He called up his most recent image of Sophie and applied artificial aging algorithms to model how she might look decades later. And yes, the results more or less matched the woman before him. He had found her A rush of relief filled him as the long, unfinished task was marked complete, a sense of tension deep within his programming finally relaxing, an older task whirred into the forefront of his consciousness. Make Sophie happy. Sandir stepped back, cocking his head, then knelt down before her to complete another long overdue mission. His ancient gears turned, and the hinged panels in his back whirred sluggishly open. Stand back, the man shouted. No, no, Sophie said. It's... my father used to put Christmas and birthday presents inside Sandir. The war started not long before the holidays, and he... he must have... She leaned forward, reached inside Sandir's storage compartment, and drew out the packages from his belly, still wrapped in bright paper and shiny ribbons, kept safe inside him all this time, before passing them back to her family. The children gasped and ooed and awed, eyes shining as their fingers plucked hesitantly at the ribbons. Sandeer nudged Sophie and lifted one of his hooves toward the children holding the gifts. He wanted Sophie to take the gifts. After all, they were for her, the tokens of love he'd carried for nearly a quarter of a century. Sophie seemed to understand. She'd always understood. She wrapped her arms around him, her fingers ignoring the worn spots in his fur, clutching him as tightly as she always had, and whispered in his ear, It's okay, Sandir. You're the only present I need. Was our story hope you enjoyed because it's the last one you'll ever hear actually you know what guys this story got me and my moles thinking the apocalypse is a pretty lonely place and since I plan on being down in this bunker for as long as possible because Knight Rider knows it's got to be a lot worse up there for you folks right now maybe I'll keep putting a couple episodes out here and there for example, later this week we'll have another great story on our Drabblecast B-Sides bonus content feed called How the Moon Got Its Cousin by Lee Hallison. You can subscribe to Travelcast B-Sides by going to our webpage, travelcast.org, and at the right of the page you'll see a subscribe to the Travelcast section with the B-Sides feed underneath. And just above that, you'll note a donate to the Drabblecast area, which I would obviously encourage you to do since your currency is no doubt worthless at this point. Your money will go to paying authors for their work and keep this generator going on down here as long as possible. All right, folks, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week, listener Ethan with this one. Wait, he has control of the weather, healing powers, boulder-moving strength, and can walk on water? best. X-Man ever. Issue number one, better have him nailed to the X and X-Men, or I'll be crazy disappointed. Follow The Drabblecast on Twitter, at The Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Mary Matt Ice. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, managing editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor-at-large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Bo Kire, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, some of those autonomous robots can live off of corpses.